Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie. Okay, a couple things before we get going. First, did you watch Vikings by the History Channel? Have you wondered if they got anything right? Well, over on the Members Only feed, I discussed the things that they got wrong, and also the things they got right, with voice actor and friend of the show, Jim Cartwright. It's a lot of fun, so make sure you download it. And next up, as requested, we have another myth. And this one is out of Scotland. So that's what's going on with the members. Second, as promised, I have a giveaway. If you're on Facebook, you probably already have heard me comment on a particular PC game that I think is quite possibly the greatest historical game ever made. I'm speaking, of course, about Crusader Kings 2. Well, I thought you might like a copy. And through dumb luck, I have an extra copy to give away. You might also have noticed that I have some intensely fashionable buttons, as well as some stickers that feature the BHP logo, Hipster Hadrian, and of course, everybody's favorite word, whatnot. And I'd like to give you a few. Also, I'm kind of curious how you listen to the show. You know quite a bit about me, but I know pretty much nothing about you. So here's my plan. I'm going to have a small contest. All you need to do to enter is submit an image of your favorite way to listen to the BHP. Maybe you listen on a run. Maybe you listen while cooking. Maybe you listen while stuck in traffic and trying to avoid going all boudica on that jerk who keeps on tailgating you. Or maybe you stage reenactments of Dark Age English monastic life by having gallons of ale on hand and drinking every time I say, we just don't know. Whatever it is, I'd like you to send me a drawing, a photo, or anything else. The only requirement is that it needs to be in a digital format so that you can email it to me. But beyond that, feel free to go crazy. I'll put the top contenders up on Facebook, Twitter, and the forums. And the top three submissions will win the most fashionable stickers and buttons around. And the best submission will also get a free Steam copy of Crusader Kings 2. So be creative and send your submissions to thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. Oh, and the deadline for submissions is October 25th. Good luck. Okay, when we last left off, Augustine had become the Archbishop of England and had been given orders to make London the seat of the English church and also had some papal answers to some rather odd questions. Well, the Pope wasn't just sitting on his hands and letting things take their course through all of this. He was actively involved. For example, he wrote to the Archbishop of Arles and basically said, can you help Augustine out a little, please? Also, if he brings you any issues regarding the behavior of your clergy, can you just look into it and try and deal with it sternly? For me, please? Reading between the lines from the Pope's direction, I think it's pretty clear that the Bishop of Arles was something of a light touch, and that Augustine was, well, the opposite. The Pope also wrote and advised Augustine to not be vain about the miracles that were occurring in Kent. You'll recall from earlier episodes that there were miracles that were leading to increased converts. Well, Augustine was told to not take any glory in this, especially upon himself. Again, because the Pope felt the need to comment on this, we might be getting a little glimpse into the kind of person that Augustine was. And it wasn't just clergy that the Pope was writing to. He also wrote to King Ethelbert of Kent, The Pope, naturally, requested that the king push the Christian faith and suppress other religions that he encountered. And the king was given a few carrots to encourage him on this. 
The first was in the form of presents that carried with them the blessing of the Apostle Peter. So that's pretty cool. And the second carrot was that the Pope reminded Ethelbert that the world was about to end. As in, it was going to end in his lifetime. And it would end with all sorts of disasters and wars. But the king would be given a place in heaven if he did his job well. And he got plenty of converts. So Augustine's mission was something of a team effort. And he probably would have been aware of that. And that's a good thing, because one thing was clear from the letters and orders that Augustine had been given. He had his work cut out for him. Luckily, Pope Gregory seemed to recognize this, because in addition to the letters requesting support, the Pope also sent more missionaries in 601. And they arrived with presents. And who doesn't love presents? For example, they brought Augustine a pallium, which was basically a special outfit that served as a physical manifestation of the papal authority bestowed upon the new archbishop. Interestingly, some scholars argue that the Roman church's use of the garment can be traced to another Roman character that has ties to Britain, Emperor Constantine. But whatever the origins, Augustine now had one. And he probably looked rather fancy in it. The missionaries also brought with them sacred relics, vessels, other vestments, books, and of course, they also brought instructions. The new instructions dictated that Augustine needed to ordain 12 new bishops for the diocese as soon as possible. Also, he needed to send one of those bishops to York. Now, it's been a while since we've chatted about the North, but as you probably remember, the North wasn't exactly the most placid of territories. From the record, it looks like there were some pretty serious struggles going on both with the Era and Bernicia, as well as some rather intense fighting against the surrounding British kingdoms. So going North and trying to establish a new church would be, well, it would be pretty scary. But here we're once again seeing the echoes of the old Roman order. The Pope wanted two major seats of power on the island one in London, and one in York, just like it was in the old days of Roman domination. But like we mentioned last week, relocating from Canterbury to London would be no easy feat. It would likely anger his one royal ally on the island, King Ethelbert of Kent. And London was in the territory of the East Saxons, who were ruled by King Sled. And King Sled was pagan. Oh, and you know who else was pagan? King Aethelfrith of Bernicia. And given the level of dynastic struggles, and the fact that his predecessor, King Hussa, just vanished from the record, there's a good chance that Aethelfrith violently ejected Hussa, as well as his relatives, from the kingdom when he seized power. This was probably not a man who was inclined to take things lightly, nor peacefully. I mean, he was in the north after all. And yet, Augustine was supposed to ordain a bishop and send him up there. And the surrounding British kingdoms were unlikely to be too friendly to this bishop either, as he was sent from an Anglo-Saxon kingdom to the south. I mean, the British had just fought a major battle at Cat Wraith in 600. According to the record, this was an assault that included warriors from a variety of British kingdoms, some as far away as North Wales and Scotland. And they all joined under the banner of the kingdom of Godothan, in an attempt to push back against the Angles. Now, Gadothan neighbored Bernicia, and actually was once the territory of another tribe that you might remember from the Roman episodes. 
the Vododini. So apparently, the British warriors gathered and assaulted the stronghold of Catraith. And they failed. According to the poem Egodathan, they failed so completely that nearly all the Britons involved in the battle were slain. Things were turning against the British. And in such a circumstance, it's unlikely that the Brits would feel charitable when seeing a religious emissary that was sent from a Germanic kingdom. So yeah, this whole thing was a bit dodgy. And here's an additional wrinkle in the Pope's plan. The records indicate that the English church was also short on manpower for quite a while, with communities, even long after the conversion, not seeing their clergy for as much as a year. Think about that. These new converts were supposed to be Christian, which was a new and alien religion that they probably didn't fully understand. And as they were adjusting to this new god, they probably would have needed some guidance on how to worship, especially considering how strict some of the rules were. And yet, they might have only seen a man of the cloth once a year. And for the other 364 days, they were pretty much left to their own devices and interpretations. Now eventually, Christianity would take hold much more firmly. And we will see in the Laws of Inna that failure to quickly baptize a baby or doing something like working on a Sunday could get you fined. But that won't come around for quite a long time. Right now, when manpower and a sense of religious authority was needed the most, it was in short supply. Consequently, it's not too surprising that paganism persisted, even in the so-called Christian kingdom of Kent. I mean, you had generations of history with Thunor and Woden, and then someone comes along and says you need to worship Christ instead. But they scamper off before they can tell you when, where, and how to worship. So, in that circumstance, going back to the familiar embrace of your old gods might have been quite tempting. Now, later on, according to Bede, when kings converted, sometimes their subjects would be converted en masse in a subsequent ceremony, which was a much more staunch position for a newly Christian king to take. But even in that circumstance, it wouldn't mean that paganism was utterly wiped out in a community. In fact, we don't have any record of paganism being forbidden in English communities until the reign of Aikenbert of Kent in the middle 7th century. So despite the growing zeal among some members of society, the old gods persisted. Oh, and that lack of manpower I've been talking about might have had another impact you might not have guessed at. Fashion might have changed along with the conversion, with the local population taking on a more classical style. Now this is not as crazy as it might seem at first. I mean, you have foreign, holy, and wise men coming to teach and convert the people. And, like I mentioned earlier, at the beginning, they were rather short-staffed. In such a circumstance, it isn't impossible that the newly converted Anglo-Saxons weren't able to distinguish between religious matters and foreign fashion choices. Sort of like this. Hey, Unferth, you think that robe that he's wearing is part of our new religion? Or is it just a robe? Maybe I should wear one just in case. And really, how would they know if they only saw a man of the cloth once a year? Alternatively, these Christians were kind of the new cool crowd, so maybe there was a certain level of mimicking that was going on there as well. But the point is that the transition of the community from pagan to Christian was probably long, confused, and from the record, involves some strange side effects, like with the classical styles becoming popular, and also the old pagan ways getting mixed into the new religion. 
And all of this might have been, at least in part, thanks to a general sense of ecclesiastical neglect. So this was kind of a mess, even in Kent. And yet the Pope wanted a rapid advance into what was essentially hostile territory. So that should be fun. Now, following the conversion, we start to gain a greater understanding of King Ethelbert of Kent, as well as his kingdom. That's because we now have the written laws of Kent. As you might recall from earlier episodes, access to literate men and the ability to have written laws was one of the perks that came with conversion. And it was quite a perk, not just for King Ethelbert, but also for us. We're finally able to start to see their legal system which, in turn, gives us a window into the organization of Kentish society. Like we've been speaking about for months, we're seeing the Anglo-Saxons transition from an egalitarian society to one that's stratified. But egalitarian doesn't mean that everyone was equal, but rather that society was still fluid, that you could still move up in the ranks or down. Think about it more like things were transitioning from a system that reflected anarchy to one that reinforced a strict hierarchy. And one bit of evidence of that transition is the fact that the laws distinguish between kings, noblemen, freemen, churls, and slaves. Yep, slaves. And this should have caught your attention because despite the legal distinction, we lack archeological signs of slavery. No slave chains, no obvious signs of slave accommodation, or anything else that would say, There were slaves here. It's hard to make sense of this. I mean, does this mean that there were slaves, but they weren't kept in the traditional ways? Does this mean that slavery was closer to indentured servitude? I mean, here we are looking at historical records that seem to indicate that slavery was a fact of life. But the absence of archaeological objects reflecting slavery cannot be ignored. So what does it tell us about these early societies? Your guess is as good as mine. But there's something else rather fascinating about what we see in these laws. Despite the closeness in time to the conversion, and the fact that this is the first Christian Anglo-Saxon king that we know of, King Ethelbert's laws have relatively little to do with Christianity. Further, though Bede claimed that his laws were Roman in nature, they actually weren't. They were a little bit like the Lex Salica, which were the laws for the Salian Franks put out by Clovis, But even that connection is tenuous, not the least of which because the Lex Salica was written in Latin. Athelbert's code was written in English. In many ways, this code was unique. And it's actually the earliest law code written in any Germanic language. And it makes me wonder whose idea it was to put pen to paper in the local language. You would think that the instinct would be for the scribes to write in Latin, as that was the language of the Roman church and also of learned men of the time. But maybe writing in Old English was one of the ways that they were reaching out to the Anglo-Saxons. Who knows? Anyway, as you might have gathered, things are a bit hectic and confused, and Christianity wasn't firmly entrenched in Kent, not even in their laws, which was an area where the king had quite a bit of control. And this lack of entrenchment probably wasn't helped by King Ethelbert's politically savvy, but ecclesiastically soft, decision to not require a mass conversion, but rather to allow his subjects to make their own choices. So Kent, it seems, was just sort of slouching towards Christianity. And slouching was not what the Pope had in mind. 
And if Augustine was going to expand into the Kingdom of the East Saxons, and thereby set up camp in London, and also establish a seat of power in York, which required expanding into Bernicia, he would probably want more than simply the aid of King Ethelbert. And as luck would have it, there were other Christians on the island. The British kingdoms of Wales were widely Christian, and it seems like Augustine soon became aware of that fact. And he had papal orders that stated that he was in charge of all the Christians in Britain. So he should probably meet these guys. And sometime between 602 and 604, he did. Can you imagine what the British clergy must have been thinking when they heard about the conversion of Ethelbert and the presence of an archbishop on the island? For nearly 200 years, they have been struggling with the Germanic people who now inhabited their island. And lately, they've been losing ground. Wessex had cut Wales off from their allies in the Cornish Peninsula. The fighting in Bernicia and Deira in the north had not managed to oust either kingdom, and actually had led to a few military disasters. Things were not going well at all. But here was some hope. A potential ally a fellow Christian, and one that they probably had heard had converted one of the most powerful kingdoms in southern Britain. You can imagine that these bishops might have thought that they had finally found relief from these encroaching pagan kingdoms. If not in the form of Ethelbert of Kent, then at least in this archbishop from Rome, Augustine. So they met at a place called Augustine's Oak. Well, at the time, it wasn't called Augustine's Oak, but by the time that Bede was writing, that's what it was called. And we're told that this was on the borders of the Huissa and the West Saxons. So it was probably somewhere around the border of Somerset and Gloucestershire. And the British bishops would have quickly lost any sense of hope upon meeting this firebrand from Rome. The thing is that Augustine was instructed by the Pope to be pretty lax with the Anglo-Saxons. Unferth could still kill the oxen, for example. He was just now doing it for a feast on a Christian holy day, rather than as a sacrifice for his old gods. But functionally, very little had changed for our favorite hypothetical Anglo-Saxon. The British Christians, on the other hand? Yeah, the Pope didn't have any specific instructions on how to deal with them. And based upon how Augustine wanted to chastise the clergy that was across the channel for things that the local authorities had no issue with, it's pretty clear that the new Archbishop of England felt that strict enforcement was the best path whenever possible. And so you had these British Christians who had a continuous line of worship that went back to the days of Constantine being told that they were doing it wrong. The way you're comporting yourself? Yeah, that's wrong. The way you're dating Easter? That's wrong too. It's actually on a different Sunday. The way you're cutting your hair? Yeah, even your barber has it all wrong. Your tonsure really shouldn't look like that. Basically, you're going to have to change everything. Immediately. And that was probably a tough pill to swallow since they've been doing their own thing for ages without any help from Rome. And Augustine's sales pitch was probably not helped by the fact that, according to the papal plan, the seat of power for the British church would be in the east, in London, with another major bishopric in York. The Anglo-Saxons, who were mostly pagan, and even the ones who had converted had really only been Christian for about 15 minutes, would now be the head of the British church. And then Augustine decided to crank the dial up to 11. The British clergy would be required to reach out and attempt to convert the Anglo-Saxons. 
We spoke in earlier episodes about how the Brits were likely withholding their religion as a sort of strike back. Kind of like, I hope you enjoy all that land you stole and keeping our families as slaves. I'm sure it's going to serve you really well when you burn in hell, pagan. Well, now they were supposed to share not only their island, but also heaven with these filthy barbarians from the east. Needless to say, the Brits were not too excited about this whole business. And look at it from their point of view. Augustine came in, told them that they were doing everything wrong, and then wanted them to hand over power to a bunch of pagans who apparently had enough intermarriage that Augustine needed specific instructions on how to handle guys marrying their stepmothers. So yeah, the Brits balked. And so Bede says that Augustine decided to do something a bit more extreme. And we do know that he was running around in Kent doing miracles, so he decided to try and pull one off here. He basically said that if he could heal someone through faith alone, that that would be proof that God wants the Brits to obey his demands. Really. That's what Bede says happened. And as luck would have it, Augustine apparently was traveling around with a blind Englishman. So Augustine had the Englishman brought forth. And then he did the faith healer thing, and the man declared that he was no longer blind. And I'm sure that's exactly what happened, and was in no way a ruse to get the submission of the Brits. And that skepticism that you're hearing in my voice appears to have been shared by the British bishops. Or maybe they recognized a hard sell when they saw one, and thought that they should sleep on it. Whatever the reason, they said they needed to talk this over before agreeing to anything, and that they would like to have another meeting in the future. Now, the sense that I get of Augustine is that he was probably tempted to say something along the lines of, Hey, hey, don't leave the lot. What can I do to put you in this church right now? But in the end, he agreed, and another meeting was planned. Anyway, so apparently the British bishops ran into a hermit on the way to the Second Council, and he advised them that if Augustine was meek of heart, that it would be a sign that he was of God and they should follow him. But if he was harsh and proud then they should not listen to him because he was, quote, not of God, end quote. Which pretty much sounds like he was of the devil, right? Well, we've been learning about Augustine for the last few weeks. And have you heard anything that would make you think that he was going to be meek of heart when he met up with people who even the Pope said were under his control? Yeah, probably not, right? When the Brits met Augustine for the second time, he was comfortably sitting in a chair. And he continued sitting in that chair. He refused to stand, which the bishops took as a sign of his arrogance. And things really went downhill from that point forward. Now, in Augustine's favor, we're told that he was going to give the Brits a pass on everything but the dating of Easter, the way baptism was performed, and of course, the mandatory preaching to the English. So presumably, the haircut issue was set aside. But the Brits were already thoroughly ticked off by this archbishop at this point. And the issue that Bede neglects to include is the placing of the seat of power in English hands, which was a papal directive, so it's not like Augustine could have taken it off the table even if he wanted to. So it probably shouldn't surprise you at all to hear that they told Augustine where he could shove it. And this archbishop was not pleased. We're told that he threatened the Brits, and then he told them that if they wouldn't accept peace and be brothers with the English, then they would have war as enemies, and that they would suffer and die by their hands. Now, Bede was writing long after these events unfolded, and I should mention that Bede is in no way an unbiased account for this. 
So while it might sound like prophecy, especially since we're going to see some pretty atrocious behavior on the part of the English against the British Christians, we need to keep in mind that history, as it was written at this time, was more interested in truth rather than fact. And the truth that Bede was trying to get at was that the British Christians brought about their own destruction through divine retribution for failing to heed Augustine's warning, and that both Augustine and the English nations were blameless for what followed. So I'm just saying, be mindful of this spin. Also, while Augustine does sound a bit like a jerk, he was caught between a rock and a hard place here. If he was going to have any hope of converting the Anglo-Saxons, which he was ordered to do, he couldn't have the church based in the West. There was just no way that the Anglo-Saxons would have accepted that. And maybe he just figured that the British, being that they were already Christian, would fall in line, at least eventually. And it would be better to gain converts while punching your allies than to please your allies and gain no converts and anger the Pope. But that being said, I still think that threatening bishops is pretty poor form. So, here we are, in the early days of the English church, and already there are deep religious fault lines that are forming between the East and the West. Okay, as always, if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me at thebritishhistorypodcast at gmail.com. We're also on Facebook. Just go to facebook.com slash British History, and you can find us on Twitter as well. Just go to at British Podcast, and of course, there's the forums. Just go to thebritishhistorypodcast.com, click Get Involved, and click Forums, and we'll see you over there. Thanks for listening. Okay, it's time for another pub quiz, and this time, it's the Augustine edition. You know the drill. Question 1. Queen Bertha, the wife of King Ethelbert, was a member of a rather important European dynasty. What was the name of that dynasty? Question number 2. King Ethelbert was concerned that Augustine might cast a spell upon him, so while he let the missionary into his town, at least initially, he forbid him to do what? Question number three. King Ethelbert gave Augustine guest rights and even allowed him to do what while in his town? Question number four. True or false, Augustine was the first Christian that Ethelbert had met. Question number five. Beyond granting rights, what did Ethelbert do in order to aid Augustine in converting Kent? Question number six. What was the title that the Pope bestowed upon Augustine when he returned to Arles? Question number seven. Where did the Pope order that the seat of Christian power in Britain had to be located? And bonus question for one point each. What were the two main issues that we discussed regarding that? Question number eight. What was the name of the King of the East Saxons, the one whose son married Ethelbert's daughter, Ricola? Question number nine. What share of all of the tithes in Britain was Augustine entitled to? Question number 10. Under what circumstance can you have sex and then go to church afterwards? Question number 11. Could an Anglo-Saxon man marry his stepmother? Question number 12. 
Things up in the north were getting tense, and not just because Hussa had been ousted by Aethelfrith, but also because the local Brits had banded together to attack an Anglian stronghold in 600. And that attack failed miserably. What was the name of that stronghold? Question number 13. Following the conversion, it looks like people started wearing classical clothing. I gave two reasons for why that might have occurred. For one point each, what were those reasons? Question number 14. The laws of Aethelbert mention slavery, but that raises more questions than it answers, because when we look at the record, we are lacking what? Question number 15. The laws of Aethelbert are unique in many ways, but they were also the world's first example that we have of what? Question number 16. When Augustine met with the British bishops for the first time, he did something pretty intense in order to try and gain their submission. What did he do? Question number 17. When the British bishops traveled to meet Augustine the second time, they took advice from who? Question number 18. True or false, one of the issues that the Brits and Augustine were bitterly arguing about was the date of Easter. Question number 19. After the British bishops refused to submit to Augustine during the second meeting, what did Augustine do? And number 20, what historical theory am I not very fond of? Okay, hit pause and write down your answers. And we're going to start up with the answers right now. So number one, Queen Bertha, the wife of King Aethelbert, was a member of a rather important European dynasty. That dynasty was the Merovingians. Question number two, King Aethelbert was concerned that Augustine might cast a spell upon him. So at least initially, he forbid Augustine from entering his home. Question number three. King Aethelbert gave Augustine guest rights and even allowed him to preach and gain converts while in his town. Question number four. True or false, Augustine was the first Christian that King Aethelbert had met? That is incredibly false. He was married to a Christian. Number five. Beyond granting rights, what did Aethelbert do in order to aid Augustine in converting the people of Kent? He actually incentivized conversion by treating converts favorably at court. So if you have something like treating converts favorably at court or giving fabulous cash and prizes or something like that, you got the basic gist of it. Number six, what was the title that the Pope bestowed upon Augustine when he returned to Arles? He was the Archbishop of the English. No points if you put Archbishop of Canterbury. Number seven, where did the Pope order the seat of Christian power in Britain be located? It was to be located in London. And the bonus question, what were the two main issues with that decision? Well, the first one is that the East Saxons were pagan and London was located in the kingdom of the East Saxons. And the second issue is that King Aethelbert was probably gonna be really angry that the center of English Christian life was getting moved outside of his kingdom. Number eight, what was the name of the king of the East Saxons whose son married Aethelbert's daughter, Ricola? That was King Sled. Question nine, what share of all of the tithes of Britain was Augustine entitled to? 
he was entitled to a quarter, the same amount that was allocated to all of the poor in Britain combined. Question 10, under what circumstance can you have sex and then go to church pretty much immediately afterwards? Well, this is only allowable if you're purely having sex for the purpose of having a child. So no fun stuff. And you also had to have bathed. Question number 11, could an Anglo-Saxon man marry his stepmother? Not if the church had anything to do with it, so the answer is no. Question number 12. Things up in the north were getting tense, and not just because Hussa had been ousted by Aethelfrith, but also because the local Brits had banded together to attack an Anglian stronghold in 600. And the name of that stronghold was Catraith. Question 13. Following the conversion, it looks like people started wearing classical clothing. For one point each, what were the two reasons why that might have occurred? One, it could have been because mimicking the cool crowd tends to lead to changes in fashion. And two, the local population were probably unable to distinguish between fashion and religious matters when seeing these foreign holy men. Question 14. The laws of Aethelbert mention slavery. And this raises more questions than it answers, because when we look at the record, we are lacking any archaeological evidence of slavery. Question 15. The laws of Aethelbert are unique in many ways, but they were also the world's first example of any law code written in a Germanic language. They were the first, at least the first that we found. Question 16. When Augustine met with the British bishops for the first time, he did something pretty intense in order to try and gain their submission. What did he do? He healed a blind Englishman that he just happened to have been traveling with, which was pretty lucky. Question number 17. When the British bishops traveled to meet with Augustine the second time, they took advice from someone. Who was it? It was a hermit that they encountered along the way. Question number 18, true or false? One of the issues that the Brits and Augustine were bitterly arguing about was the date of Easter. That is true. Question number 19, after the bishops refused to submit to Augustine, what did he do? He threatened them and then told them that they would suffer and die at the hands of the English. And number 20, what historical theory am I not a very big fan of? That would be the great man theory. Okay, I hope you did well and thanks for listening.